you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. We're going to look this morning at verses 11 through verse 20. Matthew 18, verses 11 through 20. It's been a couple weeks since we've been in Matthew 18, so just remind you of the context. I think that's important this morning. This is a text, uh, certainly verses 15 through 20, that's often referred to as the process for church discipline. I prefer to call it the process for church restoration because I believe uh, that's the goal. But in order for us to fully under, uh, understand that text, I think we've got to fully understand the context. You remember, as we entered into Matthew 18 a few weeks ago, the issue was the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest. And you remember Jesus responds by saying, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you're going to have to change your mind about what greatness really is. That the true mark of greatness in my kingdom will not be pride. It will not be how great you are. It will be humility and dependence upon me. That greatness in my kingdom is not lording your power and authority over other people for your own purposes and your own benefit, but it's becoming a servant of all, loving and caring for God's children for the glory of Christ. And he told them why, because these are my children and I love them. And then he warned them. Don't you dare harm one of these children of mine. You receive them, you receive me. Don't you dare look down upon them. You do whatever you have to do. In fact, it's a passage where he talks about gouging out an eye and cutting off an arm. You do whatever you have to do, but don't you dare harm one of these little ones because they're my children. And if you do, it'd be better for you to have an upper millstone tied around your neck and cast into the depths of the sea. And so that's the context from which we look at church discipline. God's extreme love for his children. And then he talks about how we deal with a straying brother or sister in Christ. Because here's the question when he talks about having this kind of extreme love towards the children of God. The question is, well, do we just let them do whatever they want to do? I mean, even as parents, we love our children. But does that mean we just let them do whatever they want to do? No, we got to set some guidelines. And Jesus says, just because you love them doesn't mean that sometimes you won't engage in discipline. But when you do, it should be marked not by pride, but humility. This is not about punishment. This is about taking a fellow believer in Christ and restoring them to fellowship with God. So with that in mind, let's stand together in the honor of reading God's word this morning. We'll begin in verse 11. It says there, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven 
Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that instructs us not only about how we relate to you, but how we relate to one another. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom that within your church, within your body, we would display the glory of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So before we look even at verses 11 through 14, I want us to consider uh, the purpose of church discipline. Um, first of all, let me say this. Church discipline is not a pleasant topic. This, uh, I really wasn't looking forward uh, to this sermon, but it's important. Um, confronting people in their sin is never fun. Being confronted, whether it's the deliverer or the recipient, it's just not enjoyable. It's not a fun process, and for that reason, a lot of churches won't engage in it. You uh, include the fact that within American culture, the individual freedom is sacred, and so it's kind of live and let live. Well, I don't want to get involved in their life. They're not harming me, so let them do whatever they want to do. Well, that's dangerous. It's not only dangerous in the world, it's dangerous in the church. That's a dangerous attitude to have. And so individual freedom is, is sacred. We live in a culture uh, where moral absolutes are not popular. Nobody likes to be held accountable to a standard of right and wrong. They all just want to do whatever's right in their own eyes, and we know the danger of that. And then, again, you think about the, the fact that in, in most situations, we know as a church, we engage in church discipline. The good chance is they're just going to go down the road and find another church that's going to be a little more lax and let them do what they want to do. But none of those, while all those are true and they're the reality of the situation in which we find ourselves, none of those are good excuses for a church not to engage in some level of church discipline. Church discipline is necessary. Um, we know this. Every healthy organization, any healthy organization of humans, um, has some standard of behavior that the members are held accountable to. I mean, think of this in the home. I just mentioned it earlier. In the home, I hope you as parents have some guidelines and rules and you hold your children accountable. Without those rules and without those standards of behavior and without some measure of accountability and discipline, what happens? You get chaos. You can't have it. Not in a healthy organization, not in a healthy home. Schools know this. Even our public schools know this. In the school system, there's a standard of behavior. If you don't hear that standard of behavior, there's the, the threat of expulsion. They can say, you're out because you won't adhere uh, to the standards. The, the, the rotary club, it doesn't matter what you go in. Um, it's been said there's more rules to get on a bus than there is to join a church. And sadly, that's true in a lot of situations. But we know this to be true. Any healthy organization of humans has to have a standard of behavior that we hold each other accountable to. It's not only necessary, but it's biblical. This idea of church discipline it's biblical. This is not the only text that deals with church discipline. Uh, you see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 2, Galatians chapter 6, Ephesians 5, Titus 3, 1 Timothy 1 and 5. Uh, you can go into Hebrews 12, probably the preferred passage on discipline, and also Acts chapter 5. And there's others. I was looking this week. There's other passages that deal either directly or indirectly with this issue. This is biblical. That Christ and the apostles, as they set forth a pattern of church leadership and organization, there should be some measure of church discipline. Not only is it biblical, it is purposeful. 
And what is the purpose, the heading of this? Um, it preserves, number one, the glory of Christ. Um, we are called, in First Peter, we are uh, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light without the accountability to an appropriate standard set forth before God. We diminish the glory of Christ in the church, and we diminish the respect the world has for the church, and we're seeing that to, to much regard to today, that the, church, the world's not looking at the church because they're saying, you're as messed up as we are. And some of that is due to the fact that we've just been negligent in this area of church discipline. It preserves the glory of Christ. It, secondly, it protects the body. That there has to be some measure of the fear of the Lord in an individual that desires to come into the church and pray upon its people. And does that happen? You bet it does. That people will find their way into the church to use those people for their own benefit, to pray upon the people of God. And it has to be the church leadership that steps up and says, we're not going to do that here. You're not going to pray on God's people here. And we're going to hold you accountable. I mean, we see this in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, do we not? That Peter calls out Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit, and they fall over dead, which was extreme in that situation. But it was a critical moment in the life of the church. I mean, the church is just getting going here. And God sent a very clear message to the church in that moment, didn't he? You don't do that in my, amongst my family. That's not how we act. And it says that great fear came over the church. That's the understatement of the century right there. Great fear. You don't act that way. And there should be a healthy fear of we will be held accountable and, and we'll hold each other accountable in the body of Christ to a standard of behavior. But finally, most importantly, really, it, restore, it restores the strained sinner to fellowship with Christ. I mean, the goal in this is not to be harsh for the purposes of being harsh. The goal is not necessarily to punish. It, it's, it's not to, to hurt another believer. The goal is that we know we're, we're, no, we're, we're not perfect either, are we? We're just seeking to follow Jesus. Um, and what we do is we put our arm around a fellow brother or sister in Christ and we just say, I love you. I love you too much to see you going in that direction. And I want you to know the joy of walking in fellowship with Jesus. So the goal is restoring that person to fellowship with Jesus. And then now, with the purpose in mind, with that kind of backdrop, look at the people that uh, are involved in church discipline. Look at verses 11 through 14, because I want us to see how God feels about those who stray. It says, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have gone astray. So it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. And so Jesus uses the illustration of something that would have been very common to them. Many of these uh, were shepherders, or if they weren't shepherders, they certainly knew of this occupation. They knew what these people did. And, and for a shepherd, there was nothing more valuable, maybe apart from his family, than those sheep that were given to his care. He, they were not only you know, a, a source of his livelihood. They, that was his, uh, his family. If you want to consider pets, he lived with them. I mean, he slept among the sheep. He cared for them. He was constantly with them. Probably named them. You got Fluffy and Marshmallow or whatever else he named them. But they, they were, yeah, he loved them. And so if he's got one that goes astray, you think the shepherd goes, well, I got 99. 
just let that one go. No. They knew this. The shepherd loses one of his sheep. He knows that Fluffy's dead meat. He's dinner for a wolf tonight if I don't find him. And so the obsession of that shepherder becomes, i got to find that sheep. And i got to restore him to the protection and fellowship of the flock. And you see what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if that's how you feel about dumb animals, how do you think I feel about you? Jesus is showing us the heart of God that when any of us stray, he loves us. He's correcting a misconception of that day. And the misconception of that day was that if you sin, a a straying believer or a sinning believer is somehow now less valuable to the heart of God. That God's love for me is conditional based on my adherence to, to his law or his word. And the message of Jesus is clear here. That that strained brother or sister in Christ is no less valuable to the heart of God. In fact, the obsession of, of the Father and the reason that Christ came was to seek and to save that lost brother or sister in Christ. He loves them. And I just want to speak directly to anybody here this morning that, that you've strayed. You've wandered from Christ. Maybe you're watching online or listening this morning. And you've strayed. And you're hearing Satan whisper into your ear and he's saying, you've gone too far. You're beyond the grasp of Jesus. He don't care about you anymore. Can I tell you, those are lies straight out of the pit of hell. Nothing could be further from the truth. I can tell you this morning on the basis and the foundation, the bedrock foundation of God's word straight out of the mouth of our Savior Jesus that he loves you. And he loves you no less today than he did yesterday or the day before that or the year before that. And the greatest desire of his heart is that you would turn from your sin and you would turn back to him so that you would know the joy and the peace of fellowship with the one who made you, loved you, and died for you wherever you're at today. Really, isn't this the picture of the prodigal son? In fact, Luke 15, that's where this is told the other time. The parable of the lost sheep comes within the context. Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, and they say, why in the world do you hang out with lost people all the time? You remember Jesus says, let me tell you how you feel about sheep. He tells the lost sheep. And then he says about the lost coin. That's how you feel about lost coins. Men, that's how you feel about sheep. Ladies, that's how you feel about coins. And then he says, let me tell you how God feels about you. And he tells them the story of the prodigal son. And that father who's watching for that son to the return. What a great love the father has lavished upon us that we should be called his children. Amen. Because the reality is whether we want to admit it or not, all of us at one point or time were the one, weren't we? We were the lost sheep. All of us like sheep of gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And I don't know about you, but I'm grateful in those moments when I've strayed that God didn't just cast me off and say, I'm done with him and throw him in the trash. We'll start over with somebody else. But God's love pursued me. 
And the greatest desire of his heart is that I would turn back to him so that I'd know the joy of fellowship with him. That's God's heart towards the straying child. And it's within that context, this idea of God's extreme love for the lost or straying brother or sister in Christ, it's within that context that he now tells us the process for church discipline. And so we look at it, verses 15 through 20. The process begins by approaching the individual personally and privately with humility. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Now, first of all, let me say this. We should all be involved in church discipline, all of us. In fact, I think the picture that we see here is that the body polices itself. And if you read this as I'm reading this, as I've prayerfully considered this, the situations that actually reach the level of church leadership should be incredibly rare. That the body polices itself. But the process here is very clear. You see a brother or sister in Christ that's participating in a behavior that you see as harmful to themselves or harmful to the body of Christ, and you approach them privately. Now, let me give you... Let me give you three things. When, when, this is, when you see a person in your life that you see, either they've hurt you or they're, or, or they're engaged in some behavior that you would say, that's sinful and that, that needs correction. Let me give you three things really quickly here. Before you go, first of all, before you go, you know what the natural inclination of your heart's going to be? Could go tell your friends. To go talk about them. Pastor Chad ticked me off the other day, and you go and tell your friend, hey, Pastor Chad, you go, yeah, he's a loser. He blew me off the other day, too. I don't like him either. Now you got a whole bunch of people mad at you. Now you got more conflict. That's how division spreads. That's slander. And it's a sin. It's gossip, and it's a sin. The biblical procedure is that you go to the individual, not your friends first. And then... Once you say, I'm not going to do what my flesh wants to do, and that's go tell a bunch of my buddies, then you need to do two things. You need to pray about the foundation of your correction. In other words, you want to make sure that you're not uh, just engaging in something that's a matter of your personal preference. You want to know that this is a biblical issue. In fact, you need to be prepared when you go to that individual to point them to a biblical principle. I mean, this is just not something that's your personal little uh, soapbox or your little preference. No, this is a biblical issue and you know you're clearly dealing with a biblical principle. Secondly, you need to judge your heart motivation, not only the foundation, but you need to pray about the motivation of your heart. The goal here is not to hurt another brother or sister in Christ. The goal is not to uh, punish them or see them called out and humiliated. The goal is restoration. If you're here this morning and you're immediately saying, boy, I'd like to engage in some church discipline. I got some people in my life. I'm excited this afternoon. I'm going to call them out. If that's your heart this morning, don't you dare engage in church discipline because you've completely missed the heart of God. You've completely missed it. That's not the heart of the Father towards that one that is strayed. It's not to punish, humiliate. We're called to restore which is why before we involve ourselves in church discipline, we need to involve ourselves in self-discipline. 
Self-discipline must always precede church discipline, meaning you're making sure that in your own life, you're walking with the Lord as best you can in obedience to his word by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then you go and deal with the issue. Now, I'm not saying you got to be perfect in order to engage in church discipline, but, I'm, but I am saying you need to be as to the best of your ability walking in fellowship with the Lord yourself. Otherwise, you got no business calling out a brother or sister. And then, with those three things in mind, then you go privately. Why? Because you care about, he's clear, you go private. you care about this individual. You don't want to publicly humiliate them. You don't want to ruin their reputation amongst other people. So you go to them privately and you go with humility, meaning you put your arm around them and you say to them, I'm not perfect either. As Pastor Steve used to remind us, we're all just one step away from stupid. Amen? All of us. And so we put our arm around and say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm seeking to walk with Christ. I see something here that might be damaging in your life, and and I just want to call it to your attention. We all know there's a big difference between being confronted by a Pharisee and a friend. Somebody that truly loves us and cares about us. So you go to them privately, and, and if that doesn't work, then... Or if it does work, amen, you've won your brother. But if it doesn't respond, you go to step two, verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. The purpose in bringing additional people is not to gang up on them. In fact, you've got to be very careful about this. You don't want to bring 17 people. It, it just, it don't look good. I think he says one or two more with you. So maybe three at the most of you are going to go approach Brother, and the goal is not to gang up on them, but the purpose of bringing other people is to let that individual know this is not subjective. I'm not the only one who sees this. There are other people who see this as well, and we want you to be, a, be aware of this. And so you bring other with And by the way, when you do that, when you're bringing other people, it's best to bring people that you know love that individual as well. Meaning, if you show up to me with some folks, and I don't know them from Adam... I'm going to tell you, get out of here. I don't want to hear from you. They don't know me. But listen, if Pastor Jim, Pastor Bill, Pastor Kent show up, well, now i got to listen because I know these brothers love me. I know they wouldn't bring some unnecessary issue in front of me that they hadn't thought about and prayed about. So be sure you get people that love them. Well, what happens if they don't listen to that? Well, then you go to step three. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, meaning you take it to the church leadership. The leadership of the church gets involved. And Scripture doesn't give us specifics on how this actually plays out. I do not believe that this means you've got to bring them up in front of the entire church and parade them up here and do that kind of thing. I do think it means that you've got to bring them before church leadership and address the issue. And what the church leadership has to then do is address the issue and say, we've heard it from this person, we've heard it from these groups of people, and now we've got to deal with it. And we ask them, we're praying that you've changed your ways. We're praying that you've corrected this error in your life. But if you have not, you're forcing us to do what we don't want to do, which is the final step. And we find it in the latter portion of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Meaning we no longer consider them members of the family of faith. And our prayer would be, that as they come out from underneath the protection and the provision and the fellowship of God's family, that they somehow would see the errors of their ways and they'd wake up to the reality of their sin and they'd turn back to God. Isn't that the picture of the prodigal son? What a powerful picture of this father. He, does, he, does he argue with the son? No, when the son wants to go, he lets him go. 
And is he out there bailing the kid out every time he finds himself into trouble? No, he lets him go. And it's not until that son finds himself in the mud with the pigs that he finally comes to his senses. Now, I personally believe that the father goes and approaches him at any other time in that process, he never comes to that place. But the father had to let him see what it's like to live outside the protection, the provision, the fellowship of the family for his eyes to be opened. And then, and then he returns home and there's restoration. Meaning there are some who will be taught by precept and others that sometimes must be taught by pain. You know, um, a couple movies I was thinking of as I was studying this. Remember the, remember the Titans. You remember Berter. He's the linebacker. And um, he's got his good friend Ray. And there comes a point where Ray's not doing his job. There's expected behavior that he should be doing. And Berter knows he's deliberately not making a block that he's got to make. And he's, he's putting the unity of the team and individuals in danger. And it has to be addressed. He goes to coach. Coach says, you know my policy. I don't cut anybody. He said, I'll do it. You remember what he says? Coach, sometimes you just got to cut a man loose. Meaning that one individual is not more important than the team. We got to protect this team. And I love that guy. And he's my friend. And he's incredibly talented. The movie Hoosiers. All I got sports movies, okay? But... If you've not seen the movie Hoosiers, I ran into a couple of people who haven't seen it after first service. You've got to go see this. It's like a spiritual experience. You'll understand the Word of God, all kinds of biblical. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It is a good movie. It is a good, good movie. But in that movie, you remember Coach Dale. He sets some expected behavior for the boys. And one of his guidelines is they've got to pass the ball three times before they shoot. But you remember he's got one player on the team who decides he's going to do whatever he's going to do. He goes rogue. Old Raid, Raid just starts chucking it every time he catches it. Coach pulls and puts Ollie in. Ollie goes in. Not much later, one of the other boys fouls out. He's only got four on the court, and Raid says, well, i got to have five. So he jumps up off the bench, and he's going to go in the game. You remember what Coach says? Where are you going? You sit down. And that ref says, Coach, you only got four on the My team's on the floor. I'll play with four if I have to. But I can't use a man who goes rogue. That that one individual, and he was talented, and they needed him, but they couldn't use him because he wouldn't adhere to the standards of behavior. And Coach Dale knows i got to hold him accountable. In the body of Christ... No one individual, it doesn't matter how important you think you are, how talented you are, no one member is more important than the unity of the body and the glory of Christ. And we have to address that issue. And if a person goes rogue and they say, I don't care about you and I don't care about them and I don't care about the church, Jesus says, you treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. Meaning now our goal is not necessarily church restoration. Now the goal is evangelism. Now we're seeking to find that person to come to a place of giving their life to Christ. I want you to see in verse 18 the precepts of church discipline. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. 
And these are powerful words. And it doesn't mean that we determine the rules. It doesn't mean that we determine who's in or out or, or who's saved and who isn't. No, this simply means, we've heard this before after the confession of Peter, this simply means that our basis of authority are the heavenly precepts that God has set forth in his word. These heavenly precepts. We're binding earth what's bound in heaven. Meaning we don't come up with the rules. These, the, the Christians are not a group of people that just came up with some moral code of conduct that we're calling people to adhere to. No, this is God's word. These are God's rules. We don't set the rules. In fact, we don't really have any opinions on anything. We just got the word of God. And we're doing our best to follow God's word in every situation. But then we see also the power and the presence of Christ in our discipline. Look at verses 19 through 20. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. And does this mean that we have the ability to ask for anything or bend the will of God to ours? No. It means that within the context of restoring a brother or sister in Christ, you've got to remember the context of this verse because I think it's pulled out of context so often. The context is church, the context of church restoration. And with that, within that context of seeking to restore a brother or sister in, in Christ, Jesus says all the power of heaven stands behind you as you seek to save or restore that individual. That I will hear your prayers and I will aid you in that process of restoring that individual. And, and note this too, prayer pervades the process. Man, in any way, when we go to confront a brother or sister, boy, we better be prayed up. Because I'm telling you, if this isn't done with a prayer of, of dependence upon God and humility for, before him, church discipline can get all goofed up in a hurry. But then he goes on and says in verse 20, for where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. And another verse that's been taken out of context, this doesn't mean that God hears the prayers of groups more than he hears the prayers of one. That, we don't see that anywhere. So we, Jesus prayed by himself. I mean, the, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It doesn't mean that he hears groups more than he hears one. But what again this means is that Jesus is saying to them that within the context of church restoration, when, when you have an individual and you as a group meet together in unity in a goal to see that brother or sister restored, Jesus says, I'm there with you. And I don't know about you, but this brings me great comfort because I can't stand conflict and I hate confrontation. I'll do just about anything to to avoid confronting. It's not a good character trait to have, by the way. But you know, in those situations where I've had to confront a brother in Christ, this verse has brought me great comfort. Because as I go in a spirit of humility, I hear through this verse, Christ whisper to me, as I protect myself to make sure my heart motivation is pure in the foundation of the word of God, I hear Christ whisper to me and say, I'm with you. It's going to be all right. You show them in love the truth, and it'll be okay. Isn't that good news? 
that even as we engage this process, as we pray and lean heavily upon Christ in a goal to restore that person, Christ says, I am with you. Do you see the picture of church discipline that's painted here? We get it all goofed up. Church discipline, the picture that we see painted here, it's not a group of high-minded Pharisees that are just looking for every opportunity they can to call out a a brother or sister and to to make them look bad and hurt them and make them feel about as miserable and low down as we possibly can. No, the picture that we see here is that these are children, these are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that God loves and deeply wants to have a relationship with and our goal is to aid God in that process of seeing brought back in to fellowship with Jesus. And so we handle this situation with gentleness. We are strong and bold on the truth and we are gentle in love. No discipline is pleasant, is it? I mentioned earlier the, the Hebrews 12, 12, 11. No discipline is present at the time. None of us like this. But if you'll let it train you, the author of Hebrews says, it bears or it yields the fruit of peaceable righteousness. This is good when it's done appropriately and right in a good spirit. How many of you as kids heard heard your parents say, I heard this on more than one occasion, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, and you thought, yeah, right, that... It's going to hurt me more than it hurts you. But then you remember, you also know if you're a parent. When that moment came, when you knew you got to discipline your son or daughter. And all of a sudden, that truth that you heard of this child, it came back and became reality, didn't it? That's how we discipline individuals in the church we love them and we do our best to demonstrate the hands and feet of Christ as we seek to restore them to fellowship with the father we all need this amen I am so grateful I'm telling you church family I'm so grateful that I have had men in my life who cared enough about me to occasionally put their arm around me and say, in this area, you better watch out. And because they love me in that way, they protected me from a lot of hurt and those around me from a lot of hurt because they were willing in Christian love to step out and call me out when I needed to be called out. And the person who tells you they don't need that, don't hang around them. We all need this. This is the job of the church. And let me finally tell you, again, if you are here this morning and you've strayed, the heart of the Father towards you is that you would return. You know my favorite story, I was rereading Luke 15 again to get a better context of this. You remember the father, the son returns. My favorite part of that whole story. I reread it again because I wanted to see it again and make sure I was right. But you remember that son returns. He gets the ring. He gets the robe. He gets a big celebration. 
at any point in time, does the father bring up the past? Not one time. Boy, isn't that good love? Never says, boy, we got to sit down, son. You're going to learn the lesson. I'm going to rub it in right here. The minute he returns, the father's watching. He grabs him up. And in repentance, there's restored fellowship and love and forgiveness. And if you've strayed this morning, I can tell you the same awaits you if you will turn to God in repentance and faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you most importantly for your love. God, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, they've never known the love of the Father. God, I pray that your kindness would lead them to repentance. God, for those that may know you and maybe they've strayed this morning, they know it in their heart. They know where they're at. Maybe right now they're experiencing conviction in their heart which is your means of drawing us back to yourself God I pray today whatever lies they're listening to all those lies would be overwhelmed by the clear truth that was demonstrated on the cross that you love them immeasurably and if they'll return today There's forgiveness. There's grace. There's restored fellowship. And I pray that they would return to you. Father, for those of us that that are seeking just to walk in obedience to your word, God, open our eyes to those situations around us. Protect us from gossip and, and slander. And in those moments, in those situations where we know there's a clear issue that needs to be addressed, I pray that we would go in humility and love to seek to restore a brother or sister so that the glory of Christ might be preserved, the body might be protected, and that brother or sister restored. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.